Uh, book of Matthew, we're going to go there. Matthew 5. Just as a reminder, in Sunday school, I'm a question and answer guy. That means I ask questions and you give answers. I like to participate and learn and grow, so we'll take our time. If you don't know the answer, we'll just wait until it comes to you. We may be here. Yeah, it's okay. I got all afternoon, so. Matthew 5:17, Christ says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, as we gather together, we may be few, but these are the ones that you've assembled here this day. I pray that this lesson would be uh, instructive and educational, but also challenging. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the reason I picked this lesson is because it's been something that we've been doing on Wednesday nights, and we don't put it out on the internet. It's just a Zoom interactive course. And so over a period of 27 weeks, our church will be going through a book of the New Testament every Wednesday night. And so obviously we start in Matthew, and uh, it's the most important book to begin with um, laying a foundation for the rest of the New Testament. However, um, I want to go through some principles about the Gospel of Matthew, give you some warnings about uh, application, and hopefully we'll come away where I told Pastor Jeff this morning that I don't do too much damage he has to repair. Um, but it's a, a very difficult book. So as one of the Gospels, Matthew, of course, is the account of the testimony of the life of Christ. Um, the word gospel means what? Good news, so it is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is particularly Matthew's account. Uh, the book is, I would say this, and, and I want you to see if you have this opinion or is it something you've heard before. The book is the most misunderstood and misquoted books in all the New Testament. Did you know that? Most would say probably not. Probably not. Maybe Revelation could be because of its prophecy, but most run away from Revelation. So in order to understand Matthew correctly, we've got to understand that there's a purpose of the book, there are recipients of the book, and we can't confuse those two ideas. If we make this book applicable and Christian, we're doing it a great disservice. So let's talk about the author here for a moment. Um, obviously, the book has the author's name, Matthew. He's an apostle of Christ. He's an educated man. What is his Hebrew name? Matt? Matty? It's Levi. Levi. Do you, when you think of Israel, what comes to your mind when you hear Levi? Levites. What book of the Bible? Leviticus. Leviticus. What is the book of Leviticus about? 
Laws, temple, tabernacle, priestly function. Leviticus is a horrible book to read through. Have you tried it? What? It's because God is giving distinct instructions to Jewish or, or Israeli priests, the tribe of Levi. So if Matthew's Hebrew name is Levi, what do we know automatically about Matthew? He is from what tribe? The tribe of Levi. So what does that mean? When he grew up, what did his family do? They worked in and around the temple. Doesn't mean that he was a priest, because understand that very few would be priests, but who does all the work around the temple? The wood cutting, the water, the maintenance, the cleaning. Who does that? The tribe of Levi. So at the very least, Matthew is related to priests, but his whole life is about the temple. However, even though he's one of the original 12 disciples, what is Matthew's vocation? Tax collector. You'll find that in the King James in another word. What is that? Publican. Tax collector. Publican. So he went from being part of a priestly family dedicated to the service in and around the temple, if not the priesthood itself, which would be a possibility. And he became a tax collector. What is the problem with that? He goes from serving God to serving a secular government. Tax collectors are the most hated Jews on the planet because not only do the Romans hate them because they're vile, but they do the dirty work of the Romans. Tax collectors steal from Jews. So Rome says, you're going to be taxed at this rate, and Matthew would say, I'm going to increase that rate and pad my pockets. He literally has betrayed the Jewish people. He's despised and rejected. He's good at accounting. Um, chapter 18, 23 and 24. Chapter 25, 14 through 15. It talks about Matthew in accounting terms. So he's good with numbers. The Gospel of Matthew is very orderly and concise, like a businessman would present. Rather than write in chronological order, and Matthew doesn't always write things in chronological order. Sometimes he'll write things that happen later and put them earlier in the book. He writes according to topics. So when you start reading Matthew 1 and you get to 28, it isn't necessarily the story all in the right chronological order. He mixes topics and he organizes topics to make distinct points. Matthew possesses a skill in his writing because of his mathematical work in tax collecting. Back 2,000 years ago, 
Matthew would have been Roman trained to be a tax collector, which would have meant that he didn't necessarily write in full sentences. Tax collectors for the Roman Empire wrote in shorthand. And it's interesting to see in some of the manuscripts, you'll sometimes see Matthew's or what seems to be shorthand. Paul does this once in a while. Sometimes in the writing, uh, instead of the whole word theos, which is God, you'll just see a theta, a capital T-H. It's just a habit of writing, shorthand. And that shows up in Matthew's work. Um, tax collectors would be expected to write as a person spoke. So that's interesting because if Jesus is speaking, it's very possible that Matthew was recording. So, for example, uh, we don't have time to go into John Mark or the book of Luke. Where did... Mark and Luke get their gospel from. Is Mark a disciple? No. Is Luke a disciple? No, Luke's the only Gentile writer in the whole New Testament. Mark hung out with Peter. Peter was an eyewitness. Luke hung out with Paul. Now, I'm not undermining the inspiration of the Spirit, okay? The Spirit is the author, the human is the penman. But Luke actually says, well, I'm gathering all this research and producing this. And so, other men are interviewed. Spirit is the author. But Matthew is distinct. John is distinct. Because these men are writing the words of Jesus, possibly when Jesus even spoke them, and not necessarily at a later recorded time. So that would mean that perhaps Matthew kept notes and then later on assembled them into the book of Matthew. Very interesting. That's just what a tax collector would have done. The Sermon on the Mount. Who gives the greatest explanation of the Sermon on the Mount out of all four Gospels? Matthew. You know, Luke does record it. Uh, it's a, in a different phase, in a different form. Matthew records it in full. Maybe he took notes. Matthew would have given up his family, his culture, and his religion all for the sake of being a profitable tax collector. Uh, Andy watched Fiddler on the Roof on the plane ride out. Anybody ever seen it? I've never seen it. There's a part in Judaism that when you deny your faith, you become dead to a Jewish family. Not just like, ain't talking to him no more. No, this is like dead. You are gone. And so to Matthew's family, he would have been completely and utterly cut off. But what's interesting is that Jesus now chooses this rebel to be restored and now write this gospel. And who is he writing to? His own people. So he goes from fallen man 
to restored gospel writer. Um, Matthew wrote his gospel probably in the early church period, 50 to 60 BC. Um, probably should make a comment here that I don't think that Matthew is the earliest book written. Uh, I think Mark is the earliest book written in the New Testament. Um, liberal scholars and theologians, you've got to watch out for. And even in some of the more modern translations and their study Bibles, they'll talk about that uh, Matthew and Luke may have used Mark and this fantasy concept of a document called Q that doesn't exist uh, in order to record these things. And I think that takes the inspiration of Scripture out of it. There has never been a proven idea that Q exists. So what they're saying is that these men could not have been original in their writings because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all cover the same material. So instead of crediting the Holy Spirit for that valid point, they're saying that these men must have had an earlier document written by someone that doesn't exist, and therefore that is how they all wrote what we call the Synoptic Gospels, or the Gospels covering the three same topics. John's different. Um, that's hogwash. But you will see it in some of the more modern study Bibles. And uh, I even think... Um, Holman Christian Standard, who does produce a King James Study Bible, I even think that that question is in there. So uh, Ryrie, you're not going to find it there. Uh, he's a classic dispensationalist, but some of the newer ones you'll see that. So be very, very careful with that. Um, there's no such thing as Q. So Matthew writes to the Jews. Please understand this. Do we have anybody here that is Jewish? You're Romanian, I know that. <laughs> oh, hungry. I'm hungry, too. <laughs> Hungarian. What's, what's our family trace? Where are we from? Norway? Texoma? <laughs> I'm Irish, English, French. Um, you are not Jewish. Okay? We got that, right? So let me say this. This book is not written to you. It's not written to you. Does that trouble you? Does that change the way that you interpret this book? It should. It should. Christians need to understand that this is a Jewish book. It is not a Christian book. It does not apply to the church. In fact, when it talks about the church, it is a future entity in which Jesus says, I will build my church. But it, it's not here. Don't ever take the concept of church and infuse it into the book of Matthew unless it's Matthew 16 when Christ says, I will future build my church. When people get to the Olivet Discord, Matthew 24 and 25, and there is this idea that the rapture appears there. No, it doesn't. It's not there. It's the second coming of, to Jesus Christ to the Jews. Israel in general. No church in Matthew except Matthew 16. 
So what does that do with our favorite Bible verses? You've got to be careful on your application, don't you? So, with that said, what is the purpose of the book of Matthew? Matthew wants the Jews to know that Jesus Christ is their perfect king and that he is offering to them or offered to them a literal kingdom on this earth. He is the king that Israel has been seeking all the way back to Genesis 49 where it says the scepter shall not depart out of Judah nor a lawgiver staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes or literally until he comes to whom it belongs. It's a reference to Messiah. What tribe would Jesus come out of? Judah. Jesus is a Jew. Judah. Matthew is going to describe in detail as his whole purpose is that Jesus is this Jewish king, the Messiah that they've been looking for. This is why Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, because Jesus is the king. So let me ask you, can anybody give me a definition of the kingdom of God in Matthew? Should we sing the, the chorus? Seek ye first the... What is the kingdom of God? Maddie, what's the kingdom of God? Where God lives. That's pretty good. Good. But isn't he everywhere? Good answer though, Maddie. Good answer. You're on the right track. Reagan, yes? Heaven, where God lives. I would define that as heaven. Heaven is the home of God. Good. Girls are on fire. What is the kingdom of God? Hmm? God's administration. There's a dispensational concept. Yep. Reagan? The world. No? Let's think of it this way. We're going to think of it broadly, okay? Kingdom of God. In order to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king. So let's go back to Genesis 1. Who is the king? God. All three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yep. In order to have a kingdom, you not only need a king, but you need subjects. So in Genesis 1, who are the subjects? Adam and Eve. And in order to have a kingdom, you need a king, you need subjects, but you also need a law or a rule of law. What was the rule of law in Genesis 2? There you go. Don't eat, I'm not going to call it the apple, the forbidden fruit. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then progressively, that's not a bad word, okay? Uh, when we talk about progressives, we go, ew. Um, but that's not the way I'm using it. 
understand that God progressively revealed his law over time. Was Adam responsible for Paul's writing? No. I mean, he lives 4,000 plus years before Paul. How can he obey the Bible? Does Adam have a Bible? Does Abraham have a Bible? Does Noah have a Bible? Does Moses have a Bible? Oh, careful. <laughs> We're getting there. So there's a rule of law in God's kingdom. So Adam has this stipulation. Don't eat. But that's not the only stipulation. Tend the garden. You work. That is the first stipulation. And of course now sin enters the human race. Adam brings it upon us. And more stipulations are added. How is forgiveness now obtained? Sacrifice. Blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And then we have progression into the Mosaic law. Now we have God's rule of law. That's bigger. And then we have the prophets warning. That's now bigger. And then we have a new covenant. That's now bigger. And so throughout time, God's subjects, I'm not going to say they change, but they grow, right? So in the Old Testament, who are God's subjects? It's Israel, isn't it? It's Israel. They are part of the kingdom of God. So now when we get to the New Testament, we have a God who is the ruler. He's king. We have a rule of law which is the completed scriptures. Who are God's subjects? The church. You. You. But does that mean when we take that idea, that overall definition of the kingdom of God, and we come across Matthew talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is that what he's referring to? See, this is the mistake of the modern church. They're assuming that Matthew is writing to Christians. He's not. He's writing to Jews. And so if Jews are looking for the kingdom of God, the question is, what are they looking for? That's the importance here. That's the importance. Well, you see... The Jews are looking for a king. They call him Meshiach, Messiah, to literally come from the presence of God. He's known as the Son of Man, and to sit on David's throne. On the top of Mount Moriah, which happens to be a Muslim shrine at this moment, and rule and reign inside his kingdom. That's what the Jews are looking for. And so, God sends a messenger to tell the people, it is time for the king to come. What is the messenger's name? John the Baptist. And what is John's message? Repent. Change your mind. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Why, what is the 
<clears throat> what is the last name of John? The Baptist, right? <laughs> so, downstairs, you have a baptismal tank, right? So, when do we baptize? After someone accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Is that what John was doing? You ever think about that? Okay, so when we get to John chapter 1, John baptizes... Who? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Did Jesus get saved? No. Do you understand that the baptismal tank is nothing new? It's not a Baptist invention. It's not. Baptismal tanks were all over the Temple Mount. They are for cleansing, spiritual cleansing. And so a Jew would go to the Temple Mount, make sacrifice, confess sins, and the washing in the baptismal would be a sign of purification and cleansing. And so when John comes and says, repent, change your mind, that's not salvation by the way. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does it mean to be at hand? It's here. There is someone that's coming that is going to offer you in its entirety the kingdom of God. The king is making his entrance into this world. Did the Jews accept it? What did they do with the kingdom of God? Well, let me give you a hint. They crucified the king. Now, let's be fair. Was it the king's plan to be crucified? Yes. Did the Jews understand that? No. No. And so Jesus offers this kingdom in full. Now, what would have happened if the Jews said... We accept you as our king. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. We crown you king. We see that you're going to die for sins. You're going to resurrect. You are our Messiah. What would have happened? <laughs> History's over. That's what would have happened. We're done. The king would have been here on earth. What happened? They rejected it. And so even though Jesus offered his kingdom in full, it never came. You are not in the kingdom of God now. Now, in that overall first definition we gave, are you part of God's kingdom? Yes. In the future, will you live eternity in God's kingdom? Yes. But every time that you come to Matthew, it's not talking about that. It's talking about Jesus, the king, offering the kingdom and setting up a thousand-year reign on this earth. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels are synonymous. Some people don't like that statement, but you can't get around it because Matthew, Mark, and Luke use them interchangeably. There may be some nuance of rule difference, but they're the same thing. 
So, when we come to the book of Matthew, the modern church has corrupted this book by teaching you that you are doing kingdom ministry and you are the kingdom builders. What I'm warning you is that you need to understand that every time you see this word kingdom, you need to think of millennial kingdom, millennial kingdom, millennial kingdom. 1,000 year reign, Jesus Christ on this earth. Not the church are kingdom builders and we're preparing the way of the Lord. You know where that came from, that thought that we are building the kingdom right now? Let me give you a hint. There's this guy. He wears this white outfit. And when he turns sideways, he has a Dagon fish hat on his head. And they call him the Holy Father. Who am I talking about? Pope. The Catholic Church is where this thought came from. It's called replacement theology. Now, when we talk about men like Martin Luther, praise the Lord for Martin Luther. He was a reformer, right? Well, in order to reform something, you have to have something in the first place, right? What did Martin Luther reform? Catholic theology. You understand that he is a Catholic priest. And so he grabbed a lot of baggage and brought it into the Protestant Reformation. This concept that the church replaces Israel and we are living in the kingdom now is Catholic. Completely Catholic. So how did the Catholic Church attempt to live out the thought that we're in the kingdom of God now? Well, let me ask you, who conquered the world in the name of Roman Catholicism? What about the Knights Templar marching into Palestine and all the Crusades? Why was that done? To fight for the kingdom of God. What about Spain going to conquer South America in the name of God? See, America's different. We had a godly heritage with the separatists and the pilgrims. We're thankful for that. We are not the kingdom builders. Because if you think about it, if churches are teaching today that we are the kingdom builders, what ultimately is going to happen to this foolish earth? It's going to be burned to a rock, a cinder. It's going to be a, a piece of rock. And then God's going to reform it into a new heaven and a new earth. So don't ever get caught up in this word kingdom being here and now. Sometimes you'll hear a wish-washy dispensationalist says, well, it's here, but just not yet. No, it's not here. Is Jesus sitting on the throne of David? No. And he's not sitting on the throne of David in heaven either, progressive dispensationalists. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father. That's not David's throne. Future, future, future. So what does that do? What does that do with Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the... Have you ever heard this passage preached that you can be blessed if you're poor in spirit? You know what I say to that? <laughs> Sorry, I just put Corona everywhere, but I'm related to everybody, so you're far enough away. <clears throat> Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Really? Yes, in the millennial kingdom. So Matthew 5 through 7, 
The Sermon on the Mount isn't a descriptor of modern behavior. It is a rule of law during the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. This is what it will look like. The promises of the Beatitudes are to Israel as they now receive God's covenantal promises. And I'm sorry that if um, this offends you because these are your favorite verses. But they don't apply to the church. By the way, you know whose favorite verses are um, Matthew 5, 1 through 12? Hillary Clinton. So you're in good company if you're, well, maybe not. Um, so what, what do we do with Matthew 6, 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Does that anything, have anything to do with Christianity? No. Is that principle easy to prove throughout the rest of the New Testament? Yes. Okay. But Matthew 6.33 is not written unto you. <laughs> it is a Jewish book. Now, I'm not saying that we take the book of Matthew and rip it out of our Bibles and throw it away. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that it's Jewish in concept. And that it's not necessarily everything is applicable to the church. The theology of Matthew, the factual character of God, never changes. He's still the same God. But we have to be careful that we don't spiritualize or churchize the book of Matthew. It's a dangerous thing. The key verse of the book is Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I am come, or think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. It's important to understand that Jesus did not come to throw out the Old Testament. Don't throw out the Old Testament. It is the foundation of the new. You don't know who Jesus is without the Old Testament. You can't understand him. And so the Gospel of Matthew is important to laying that foundation. Jesus Christ is King, Matthew chapter 1. One of the most favorite sermons I've ever written is on Matthew 1. It's over the genealogies of Jesus. I don't know if the folks that listened to it liked it. But I learned quite a bit. You usually don't get a lot by saying, well, this person begat this person and this person begat this person. But when you realize that Matthew 1 is imperative because it lays out the foundation of Jesus' right to the throne of David, and without it, his bloodline can't be proven that he is the Jewish Messiah. Now let me just give you a statement to clarify. Matthew 1 is not Mary's heritage. It is Joseph's heritage. Mary's heritage is over in Luke. That's why these two lists differ. Sometimes you'll find skeptics come and say, well, the genealogies don't match. Well, that's because you're getting one from a mother and one from a father. Positionally, the male of the household would pass down his heritage to the son. Well, we have a problem with that because Joseph is Jesus' stepfather, right? The Jews wouldn't have viewed it that way. 
Jesus would have been of that tribe because his father, Joseph, Joseph was given the duty to care for Jesus on this earth. And by the way, I think he probably died pretty early because he's not mentioned at the cross. Um, I think he's probably dead by that point. When we talk about these two chapters, Matthew points that his heritage is worthy of being the Jewish king. And from there, he's going to describe Jesus' teachings as discourses. Discourses. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, the Discourse on the Mount. The mission and purpose of the disciples is another discourse. He discusses future times in Matthew 18. He discusses chapter 23, the build up to the end times. And then he focuses in on the arrest of Jesus Christ and execution. Now, because Matthew is Jewish, he is going to rely on the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. And that makes sense, right? Who's his audience? Jews. What do Jews know the best? The Torah, the law, the Old Testament is what we would call it. And so, he is going to quote the Old Testament 62 times in the entire book, showing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Matthew loves quoting from the prophets. One of his favorite things. And I wonder if that's because um, of his fallen status and restoration. So the prophets came to warn, 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 or there's going to be consequence. Well, where was Matthew when Jesus found him? In rebellion. But Matthew listened to Christ. So I do wonder if that played on Matthew's heart. Matthew talks a lot about the birth narrative and quotes much scripture. Uh, the virgin birth in Bethlehem. Talks, uh, he's going to mention the flight to Egypt and the return. Matthew, in its application, is going to be an excellent book to draw a foundation on. But our literature is going to be after Matthew. So let me ask you this, and this is kind of a trick question, but I want you to think it through. Is Matthew Old Testament or New Testament literature? Well, you know, we have to say New Testament because if I go to my Bible, um, Malachi ends and I have this announcement that I'm now in the New Testament, right? But truthfully, what does the word testament mean? Covenant. Covenant. Is Matthew under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant? Old. When does the New Covenant start? I'd say Acts 2. Acts 2. Not long after crucifixion, but Acts 2 when the church starts. So Matthew is Old Testament literature. Does that blow your mind? Yeah. But it is. It's Old Testament literature. 
Well, why do they put it in the New Testament? I don't know. To understand that that's not inspired. It's Old Testament literature. It's before the New Covenant is actually forged. But it's really useful to understand that Jesus is the king. He's the one that fulfills prophecy. I'm going to pause there. I've got four more pages, but we're going to just stop. Thoughts and questions? So Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament too then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then that's when the break comes where Luke writes Acts, and now we have a brand new covenant. Yep. And you'll find some guys that will say, well, the, um, it starts at the cross. Well, I have a problem with that because we need a resurrection. The new covenant doesn't start until the church starts. I'll be dogmatic on that. It may be forged through the death, burial, and resurrection, but without that Holy Spirit indwelling, I don't think it's completed. The Spirit must indwell. Yeah. Um, understand you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. Right. Because when Christ comes back to the Mount of Olives, he has this army in white behind him. Who is that? It's you. <laughs> so we will rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. But to seek the kingdom of God is not something we seek. We can't seek it here. Right. We can have our eyes on eternity. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. But we got to be careful. Yeah. Yep. All right, Maddie, Joe, did you get everything? Okay, good. All right, Father, thank you for this morning. I pray that you would bless us as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.